just want to know, are we going to just continue to be a reflection of what's happening around us? Or do we want to be a part of the evolution of what's happening? Do just certain traditions have a time span? Do certain traditions run their course and then they're gone? And then, you know, it's up to the, the, the generations to discover this again and bring it back? Or do we have a responsibility to support the communities and the people and the institutions that give life? You know, do we have a, what's our responsibility to the Mardi Gras Indian tradition? What's our responsibility to the gospel tradition? What's our responsibility to the, to the culinary traditions? You know, what, what, and, and how can we be, how can we serve them? How can we serve these, these communities? Welcome back to Festival Circuit, New Orleans. I'm Rob Steinberg. Over the past four episodes, we've paid tribute to the people, history, traditions, communities, musicians, and the music that makes this city so special. In this episode, the final of the series, we'll start to look forward and think about some of the questions Ben Jaffe asked at the beginning. We'll get some perspective on how this city and its music recover from the current setbacks and come back in true New Orleanian spirit. At the beginning of the series, we talked about the unique relationship between music and death in New Orleans. This is important as we look toward the future. With each musician who passes, well, that's another person's tradition that we get to carry forward. We talked with Ned Sublet, a musician and musicologist who's written many books, including The World That Made New Orleans, from Spanish Silver to Congo Square. I think at the face of the New Orleans attitude toward death, we have to think about the Congo concept. In the Congo world, you don't die. You go on vacation because you're coming back. And you fly away, so to speak. There is constant conversation with the dead. The dead know more than us because they've had both the experience of living and dying so they can advise us. So what are they telling us? Because we need advice now more than ever. With a global pandemic and a national crisis around police violence and racism, not to mention the absolute halt that the music industry has been brought to, if the generations who came before could pass on some wisdom, what might they impart to us? For now, we'll have to settle for talking to the living. So we'll hear from some of the living legends of New Orleans music and a couple of its brightest rising stars. And we'll examine the question, how can we preserve, protect, nurture New Orleans and its music?
When we left you in episode four, we had been out all night on Frenchman Street, seeing some amazing stuff, including great collaborations in music. You, you know the feeling the day after Jazz Fest ends? Well, maybe the day after the day after Jazz Fest ends. People start to turn their minds toward their real lives. And as appealing as it may be to ignore the real world right now, we have to get back to work. COVID-19 has decimated the world economy, and there are few industries affected as much as the music industry. And as lovers of live music, most of us haven't seen a show in months, and it may be several more months or maybe longer until we can see one again. All of the artists that we talk to are itching to get back out there. Here's Irma Thomas. When we were working, it wasn't a job to us. It was fun for us. Uh, and I still feel that way about it. When I, It's a job, yeah, and you're expected to do certain things. But when you get up on that stage and you have that rapport with your audience, it's not work anymore. And all of the jobs, uh, past, present, and hopefully in the future, that I keep that kind of rapport with my audience. I, I don't sing at them. I sing to them and for them. And most of us in, in New Orleans area, that's how we, you know, that's how we do our job. We, we have as much fun doing it as, they, as our audience have enjoying it. And, and their reaction helps us be able to do what we do better because we, if they react to it, whichever way they react, that's how we are able to do our performance and have it come across as enjoyable. And if you've ever had the good fortune to see Irma Thomas perform her R&B hits or sing gospel, you can absolutely tell that she's thoroughly enjoying herself. With the world in such a precarious place right now, the optimism of New Orleans musicians, well, gave us some hope. For one take on just how intertwined music is with the city and why it's important to keep it going, Here's Big Sam Williams, a trombonist who leads Big Sam's Funky Nation and was also a member of the Dirty Dozen Brass Band. Our culture is so rich, we're not going to let it die, you know. And like I said before, I'm still doing, you know, all my shows have been canceled from March through June, so I'm going to be in my driveway for a minute doing performances. <laughs> so, you know, you have people like myself and other cats around town who are not, you know, we're not going to let the let the music die. We have to keep it alive because if the music dies, the city dies, you see? So we have to keep it going yeah and we most certainly have to keep it going for another perspective on why new orleans is uniquely affected by this pandemic we heard from tariona ball known to most as tank from the band tank and the bangas they're one of the biggest bands to come out of the city in 2017 they were npr's tiny desk concert contest winners and in 2019 they were nominated in the Best New Artist category for the 2020 Grammy Awards. Here's what Tank had to say. I would say we're more anxious. You know, the world is anxious, but nobody's like festival land like New Orleans. You know, we are festival land. We got a festival for a strawberry, you know what I'm saying? We're really intense about this live music eating type experience. So I think we're just, we're very anxious to get back to it, but we're just also so vulnerable because we have this amazing town so we have these tourists that want to experience it and then they're bringing their COVID with them you know I don't think that our spike would have been so high if it wasn't for Mardi Gras and so many different people coming and interacting with us even family and friends so you know we are an incredible city but I think anxious but also very vulnerable so we still have to be uh, very careful I personally think that I wouldn't mind if we were still on lockdown 
because I, I think that six months to a year is good, but it's so scary because our little economy, it's afraid to survive. We talked about what we hope music will be like when it comes back to New Orleans. We heard almost the same thing from two prominent female musicians in the city. First, here's Irma Thomas. And to be honest with you, uh, we don't want it to be the same. We want it to be better. Uh, you know, it, it is going to be different, so that's, that's a given. It's not going to be like it used to be, uh, you know, because we're losing so many people. A lot of our entertainers are, are being affected physically and monetarily by this situation. Uh, we have hope that we will be able to get back to work and be able to tour. So it's going to be different. I'll be older, so I'll be sitting down singing when I can't, when I'm too tired to stand up. But I still want to be a part of it in spite of it because I love what I do. I, I'm blessed to be able to still have a voice to sing, but it's gonna be very different, very, very different. And here's Tank, representing the next generation of music in New Orleans. I want things to go back to normal. I want things to be better than normal. You know, when you're when you're away from the, the techs and your fans, you honestly appreciate them much more. You realize how much they contributed to your to your living and to honestly the reason that you be. So in the future, I just hope that appreciation and even more love is just put into everything. And I think I think that's happening because I, I miss them, I appreciate them more, and I think they feel the same way about us. You don't want to take anybody for granted because, you know, they truly can be taken away in so many ways than one. Two generations of New Orleans singers, but with the same message. We want it to be better. We know we can make it better. And when we do, it will be better. Musicians and, of course, club owners just want to get back to work, doing what they do best. In the midst of this pandemic, many musicians have taken to Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube to play their music live on social media. I mean, I've watched dozens of shows on my phone, laptop, iPad, and even mirrored the feed onto my TV so that I can blast the sound and kind of pretend I'm at a concert. And there's a virtual tip jar or PayPal or Venmo address so you can drop a few much-needed doubloons into the bucket and help them out in their time of need. This can at least simulate the feeling of live music and allows fans to support their favorite artists. Many New Orleans musicians have internalized the Hurricane Katrina experience and from that learned to appreciate what we all have. Here's Rob Mercurio, the bassist for Galactic. And it might sound kind of corny, but something around Katrina time that really clicked in with the band, um, where I think all New Orleans people were, we all had the moment of, of, oh my God, we almost lost our city. And no one took the city for granted anymore. It became like something that we all acknowledged that we very special to have and the uniqueness of it and that we needed to do what we could to, to preserve the heritage of the city you know i think that sometimes maybe that's you know this with this covid situation sometimes you need to to have the potential of something taken away to really appreciate what you have and um i feel like that that ha happened to to us and a lot of new orleans people um, around Katrina and I think that 
we took on an even stronger feeling of loving our city and wanting to not saying like ambassadors of the city but we wore the new orleans flag proudly and all of us felt lifted by the outpouring of love and support from all around the world and when our musicians leave town and go on the road they feel a special responsibility to protect the heritage and the future of the city as they're representing their hometown all over the world here's tank and how she thinks about carrying the personality of the city wherever she goes. It's, it's wherever you go, it's a spirit that you carry. It's the faith that you can carry on a conversation with absolutely anybody about anything you feel comfortable about it. You are hospitable, we're kind, we're sweet, we're, we're, we just got big personalities and all of that it contributes and comes from the place that we were born, the place that you could just drive by and beep and someone will say hello to you from their porch, they don't even know you. You can knock on your neighbor's door and ask for something. They, if they have it, they'll give it to you. You know, uh, the fact that um, when we had a party, it just doesn't matter the race. We're just having a good time. It's, it's people from New Orleans, they're just different. It's Even if Ben Rouge could be so close, Slidell could be moments away, but it's just not New Orleans if it's not New Orleans. It's just not. And you just carry that with you everywhere you go. We'll be right back. You heard our interviewees say that they want New Orleans to come back better than before. A challenge? For sure. But the Crescent City has been battered and beaten in the past and came back in a very powerful way. There are a lot of facets to this conversation, including what live music will look like, where it's to be played, and for how many people. And there are some other significant changes that will most definitely be present including the reckoning of our history as a nation. We must learn, evolve, and listen so that we can better understand the effects of slavery on the generations that came after. We have to take a good, long, hard look at ourselves and how institutional racism and prejudices have led to so much violence against black people. In the aftermath of the killings of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and so many others. The Black Lives Matter movement has grown into one of the most important social causes in our nation's history. Without a doubt, New Orleans as a port city that transported and sold slaves all across the South owes an enormous debt to black people, to the music they created, and the amazing musicians that have come from the city. We've talked about dozens of black musicians in this series, and without them, well, New Orleans music would look nothing like it does today. So how do artists, music fans, and the music industry need to change in light of this renewed focus on racial justice? Here's Tank again. You know, because it's not just about COVID, it's about the, the black lives and black artists truly mattering to them. And I know that they did the blackout, showing solidarity, and it's cool. But I saw Erica Badu post something, it was just so cool. She was like, if you really want to help out black artists, how about you negotiate some of these contracts and actually give them back their masters, give them back their publishing, you know, give them back things that's truly going to help them. Because at the end of the day, we are the ones who are making this music and, and half the time we're the ones that's not truly benefiting off of it. So it would be great if they made uh, that change, you know? There's a huge problem that Tank brings up 
Throughout history, musicians from Robert Johnson right up to Bob Marley were given the opportunity to make records and in many cases signed away their publishing rights and ownership of their music. Black musicians were especially the target of these unscrupulous business tactics. Tank sees these opportunities as well with her band and her music. I'm more comfortable to have those conversations that were uncomfortable. You know, with, with uh, people around me, people I'm just regularly interviewing with, uh, with my band members, you know, it's, you're just having those conversations that were uncomfortable before, and you're just making room for them to actually happen and, and talking about changing, you know, how we can do it, how we can contribute to it. It may be small, but even a song can change somebody's whole mind. A poem can change someone's whole outlook on something. So we try to share um, the information that we've acquired uh, with the world. So I, it, it's definitely a change inside of me. Tank's right. Just think about all the musicians from Woody Guthrie to Bob Dylan to Marvin Gaye who made socially conscious songs that woke up the world. Artists like Tank and the Bangas will undoubtedly be part of the next wave of protest music. The world is changing and so is New Orleans music. We asked Anders Osborne about what the future of the city's music scene might look like. Well, I think the future of maybe New Orleans music is you know, clearly in good hands. There's so many young people moving in from all over the country and the world, uh, adding on their, you know, their slant on what this is supposed to be like. And I think they're doing a hell of a job. Um, I, I hear very little bad music coming out of the kids. Um, they're very creative. But I think, you know, from a co communal standpoint, I think some of the recovery, uh, you know, a healthy living aspect of it is important. I think we see, I'm doing a survey, musician survey right now with, in partnership with Tulane and then my foundation, Send Me a Friend. We put together a survey that we're sending out. And just an indication, we have the first few hundred reports come in. We're trying to get a few thousand, but last week, uh, the people that are reading it and trying to analyze the answers are telling us right off the bat that they've never seen anything even remotely close to this. That it's, the answers are so off the charts that they can't measure how bad of a state musicians are in. That's their answer after about 300 surveys coming in. So we are very curious, the mental health, uh, addiction, all that stuff. And this was before the pandemic. While the future of New Orleans music was moving in a positive direction, now most musicians are struggling more than ever. We wanted to give a quick shout out to the Music and Culture Coalition of New Orleans, who are connecting people with organizations that are helping local musicians during this time. Take a look at what they're doing at www.maccno.com. We want to recognize another New Orleans institution that's helping to make sure the music and culture of the city are being preserved, appreciated, and carried forward. Our partners at WWOZ have helped us to get this podcast to you, and they do a lot, including outreach for the city. <laughs> I mean, you can't be dubbed the best radio station in the universe unless you got the chops. WWOZ can be heard locally at 90.7 FM or streaming online at www.wwoz.org. And it's a non-commercial, community-owned, 
volunteer-run radio station. There's not another radio station or media outlet in the world, or the universe for that matter, that exists solely to promote New Orleans musicians and their music. The station has been conducting live broadcasts and interviews from JazzFest almost every year since they started broadcasting from a storage room above Tipitina's in 1980. They help get the music of JazzFest out to the world. The station was purchased by the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Foundation in 1986 and is an official part of the JazzFest story. This year, over two weekends that would have been JazzFest, they ran a program called JazzFesting in Place. It was a musical celebration where they played some of the best sets of music from past jazz fests. It helped ease the pain for a lot of us. And there is talk that they might do it again in the fall. This brings us to the future of the jazz festival itself. Of course, the 2020 festival was canceled. And we know we all want to see each other out of the fairgrounds next spring, or hopefully not later than the fall. For some insight into the future of the festival, here's Keith Sparra of the New Orleans Times-Picayune, who we spoke with in January, well before the pandemic. You know, if the festival is able to keep renewing its audience, then it has a bright future, you know, and it's proven uh, that it can survive the loss of the iconic figures that helped define it early on. Because New Orleans music keeps renewing itself, and because the festival has opened itself up to having all these other types of artists from elsewhere, play as headliners. So, you know, I think at this point, they have the blueprint kind of locked in. They have the business model locked in. So as long as that boat uh, doesn't rock too much, I think, you know, the festival can keep on going. I mean, it's 50 years young at this point and uh, shows no signs of slowing down. Staying true to what JazzFest has always been is definitely going to be key to its survival. But on the flip side, they still have to be open to change, um, you know, i.e., the bigger acts, i.e., like the VIP ticketing structures that they instituted. Um, they put in bleachers a few years ago. You know, there was a time I rem remember when they first put on uh, video screens up next to the major stages. Some people were freaked out by that. They're like, oh my gosh, Jazz Fest isn't the same. Well, of course it is. These are just kind of window dressing things. The core of the festival is still the same as it always uh, has been. And if it keeps that mindset while not totally closing itself off to innovation and change, then I think it can keep going indefinitely. As we discussed at length in episode three, since it started, the Jazz Fest has grown while maintaining a balance between tradition and innovation, between old and new music, and of course with the respect for the traditions and the history of New Orleans. And Jazz Fest has turned into one of the most successful and well-respected music festivals in the world. Although there are thousands of employees and volunteers who make JazzFest happen every year, there's one person who we need to talk about in more depth, and that's Quint Davis. We told you in episode one that Quint was one of the first hires that George Ween made in 1970. He's been there from the beginning, and he has shaped JazzFest more than anyone else. You heard in earlier episodes that Quint Davis helped bring gospel and Mardi Gras Indians to JazzFest, along with his longtime colleague, Allison Minor. George Ween recognized this talent, and he said about Quint, After three or four years, Quint's creativity became very evident. I created the whole concept, but Quint kept adding to it new things, and he kept doing new things, and I said, Well, you've got it, so run with it now. 
Much of the balance between tradition and innovation that we talked about in episode three has fallen on Quint Davis's shoulders. From booking Grandmaster Flash in the early 80s, to keeping the local heritage intact, to offering world music with the Cultural Exchange Pavilion, and yes, even to partnering with AEG, which took the festival to another level, Quint Davis has been behind it all. In 1990, Quint talked with Offbeat Magazine about putting on Jazz Fest, and he had this to say. Every time you create a festival and you open the gates, well, you never know what's going to happen. You can work all year round setting something up, but you don't know if the people are going to come there. You don't know what's going to happen with the festival, and, well, you open the gate, people come in, and when the magic happens and the people respond to that and to the music, it's great. When one of these things comes to life and you see how people respond to the music, it just blows you away every time. It's a feeling you can't describe, said Quinn. And then when the festival is over and you've pulled it off, well, that's a great feeling too. Part Grand Poobah, part Wizard. <laughs> Everyone associated with the festival knows that Quint Davis puts his heart and soul and sweat and tears into it. Here's Keith Spera on how much Quint embodies the spirit and success of the festival. Yeah, th you know, there's no doubt that the consistency of the Jazz Fest leadership has been a part of its success and been part of its maintaining the same sort of feel that it's always had. You know, Quint Davis has been there since the beginning, and he is very plugged into the New Orleansness of it all. I mean, he understands the local scene. He is very much a New Orleans character, as much so as any of the musicians that play the festival. Um, so in that sense, he is the, the one person that personifies the festival. What happens in the post-Quint era, whenever that may be, you know, who knows? I mean, George Ween is in his 90s, and you know, as we speak today, is still coming down to the festival every year. So Quint could have another 20-plus years of fest going in him and you know, leading the thing. But yeah, I mean, that is the big question. You know, what happens after uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the regime that's guided it all along is no longer there? Yeah, what happens next? It's a question we're all asking, but none of us have any answers right now. We know that the musicians and artists, promoters, venue owners, and music fans alike, well, we're all itching to get back to live music. And these experiments are starting to pop up all around the country. On July 10th, 2020, Tank and the Bangas were featured at the first New Orleans Drive-In Summer Concert Series, held in the parking lot of the UNO Lakefront Arena. Galactic and the Revivalists also did the drive-in shows in the two weeks following Tank's show. These kind of events are starting to show up all around the country. Typically, as the case is here, you pay for admission based on the vehicle. And for the series in New Orleans, that vehicle pass serves as admission for as many people that can legally fit in the vehicle. Here's how Tank described that experience. You know, it felt, it was different because people are in their cars and they, they're scared to really scream because they had the mask on. But I just felt so much, you know, joy, I think afterwards and just knowing that um, people got what they was looking for, you know, that they, that they truly needed it. And, and I love that. We all need it. I mean, there are socially distanced concerts happening around the country, and a number of these are drive-in shows. But when and how we get back to normal, that remains to be seen. I mean, especially in a city like New Orleans, where close physical proximity, live music, dancing, and sharing food is so important to the culture. 
Here's how Irma Thomas describes living through the crisis so far. It really makes it difficult for the people of, of New Orleans because we're such hospitable people. We're used to having that closeness and that camaraderie and that hands-on type of atmosphere with our, you know, with, with the people of New Orleans. I mean, you know, we're people who invite strangers to our homes to eat. You know, it, it was just weird. So it, it's, it's taking a toll. We, we have to really be mindful of our every move, even, even now when we're out and about and able to go to the various uh, venues for dinner, for lunch or what have you, those who are able to eat it, you know, have people eat in as opposed to take out. We have to be mindful that, you know, you can't just walk up and say hello and hug like we used to. Or shake hands like we used to. It's just different. And it's, it's not comfortable, to say the least. It's not comfortable. But right now, it's reality. And reality, in this case, sucks. We've discussed that there is certainly something different about this city. And that'll help keep the music alive. It's a combination of everything that we've talked about in this series. A deep respect for family and tradition a willingness to push boundaries, a spiritual and geographical uniqueness that surrounds the city, a love of creating, and the will to survive and thrive. Here's what Anders Osborne said about carrying on the memories of the legends that we've lost. There's a responsibility, no doubt. Uh, people will throw out things when Mac dies and you know, all the great sort of iconic names and the artists when they die off, Alan and everybody. Also some of the unknown ones, but they're iconic for us. I think you have to preserve their spirit in yourself. I'm not sure if you have to preach their music because, but this is, this is where I stand, but I think you keep it within yourself to understand their level of sophistication and their level of of just craftsmanship or whatever you want to say if they were a very emotional entertainer very uh, spiritual entertainer spirited then you need to see how much they gave of themselves and make sure that you don't sell yourself short too if they if you're into very technically advanced more of a you know a left brain approach to music and then you need to look at those people and, and see how much time they put into it. So I think you figure out who your influencers and mentors are, and then you carry that with you. And I don't see it as a burden. I see it as a privilege to have you know, a, a good measuring stick like that. And not only is it about respecting those musicians and carrying their memories forward, it's also about realizing that they never really leave us. They're always with us, in our memories, in our hearts, and in the music of our mind. You just appreciate at a very young age here how music is used to celebrate life and how it's also used to memorialize uh, people and a way for, for people to um, process the pain of death. You know, and to, to see death not as something final, but as just a, another point along the line. 
one of the most beautiful things about this city is that idea that, that nobody really ever dies here, you know, because people are always talking about you. You know, if you meant something, you know, people will continue to talk about you. You know, that's, 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 that's real, you know. And the memory never dies. I mean, people's memory exists in the music that, that all of us continue to play. The musicians we talk to have a deep respect for the past, but also an admiration and anticipation for those musicians who are to follow. You've heard interviewees talk about how the city isn't as competitive as others and that the musicians who play here see each other as a family, not competition. Here's what Papa Molly said about the first time he saw Trombone Shorty. You know, like seeing Trombone Shorty for the first time and how it just blew my mind. And, he, you know, and how it was just this little kid. He just came walking in from the back. I was on stage with uh, Big Chief Bo Dallas and Cyril Neville and all these heavyweight cats. And suddenly I just hear this. It's just like I just hear this trumpet from the back. We were on stage with Tipitinas. I hear this trumpet from the front door. And the crowd just kind of parted. And then here comes this little kid just playing this amazing trumpet with, you know, no microphone. And it's just like you could hear it all over the club. And, and I... I didn't know who it was, you know, and it's like, I turned to Cyril and said, who is that? He said, that's Trombone Shorty. I said, he's playing a trumpet. <laughs> and, oh, he plays trombone too. <laughs> so yeah, that was my first experience with that. And then fast forward about 10 years and Trombone Shorty is like really, it's like when he's really starting to blow up big, you know, nationwide. And uh, I see him at a, at a club, kind of in the backstage area, and I just go, kind of walking up to him at a fast pace to say hello and I didn't realize that he had like a couple of bodyguards that were standing there next to him and they they both turned around and were like hey wait a minute and I was like and you know Troy turns around and goes man don't you know who that is that's Papa Molly you leave him alone so yeah people we look out for each other you know the way that story ended that Papa Molly just told us gives us confidence that New Orleans will be back and it will be bigger and better than ever and, of course, New Orleans will always have that connection to the other side. You know, the side that we can't see, but we can feel. And that will help carry the connection from generation to generation, through crisis and through the uncertain times. Here's drummer Terrence Higgins. You know, I feel like everything that I play, rhythmically or musically, I'm channeling some type of spirituality when I play. Um, I think even artists that I play with have kind of noticed that I mean every note I play and every note I'm I'm giving it to them. I'm projecting this this energy because I'm channeling something spiritually and I think a part of that has to do with being from New Orleans. I'm connected to something that's a little bit more rooted into something you know what i'm saying Dude, what i do is rooted in culture you know it's not what i do it's who i am so definitely channeling some spirituality uh, some spiritualism in my plane and that's another thing i guess that comes with being from new orleans that's all i can say i can't explain it <laughs> other than that we started this series talking about the water the spirits and the unique history of music in this city. So it feels appropriate to end this with the same sense of spirituality, of the inherent mystery within the idea of the thinner veil 
between the living and the dead. With second lines and jazz funerals, music brings life and death into clearer focus. And at this moment in time, the idea of life and death are closer than they've been in a long time. We need our families, our nuclear family, our family of music, our family of fans and friends, and the family of New Orleans. The effect that this crisis has had on us, especially, you know, this, this one, the, um, makes us appreciate the Big Easy, well, more than ever. And, and the days of walking down Frenchman Street, beer in hand, going from club to club, seems so long ago. And unfortunately, still seems very far away. But the hope of the city and the hopefulness of the music is one of the things that keeps us going. And we hope that it helps keep you going, too. We sincerely want to thank you again for joining us in this journey exploring the music and culture of New Orleans, and of course, the jazz festival itself. We'll be back with season two, exploring another city, another festival, and another journey into the seen and unseen forces that guide the music that we all love. In the meantime, we know that if you're listening to this, you probably love music, and we would love to hear from you. We want to know what festival you'd like to see covered in future episodes, or what you like most about the series. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd really appreciate it, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can mention your feedback in the review, that would be great. Or you can just send us an email at festivalcircuit at osirispod.com. That's festivalcircuit at osirispod.com. We read them all, and we really, really do appreciate the feedback and input. Lastly, Festival Circuit is presented by Osiris Media. This series is narrated and produced by me, Rob Steinberg. Executive producers are Christina Collins, Andrew Goodwin, and RJB, who also double duties as series writer and creator. Produced, edited, and mixed by Matt Dwyer. The theme song is Jazz Fest Time by Circus Mind featuring Ivan Neville. Show logo by Liz B. Thanks to all the interviewees and to WWOZ. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>